Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. guys episode seven of hashing it out as always i'm here with colin say what's up colin up, colin oh i see what you did there a good old home alone reference home alone i don't know that one you don't i i I think it was like an avid costello thing oh it's like say good night kevin good night kevin yeah Yeah. there you go anyway today (laughs) the episode today is with mamir blockchain solutions or mamir solutions with uh forest and hunter why don't you say hello, give us a quick introduction as to who you guys are and what uh, Mamir Solutions is. So uh, my name is Hunter Prendergast, and uh, thank you everyone for everyone who's listening today. Um, I'm CTO of Mamir Blockchain Solutions, uh, and I am a computer engineer, formerly a naval nuclear reactor operator. And um, hey, I'm Forrest Marshall. I'm the software architect at Mamir Blockchain Solutions. Um, Formerly did work with um, smart buildings and green energy research. Um, been working in the blockchain space for a few years now. Happy to be here. Cool. Well, um, I've kind of gone over your site a little bit, and uh, I've actually talked to Forrest in the past. I think was it on Telegram. I think it was on Telegram um, that we actually discussed for a little while about like what you guys are doing and how. Uh, uh, what you're trying to bring to the space, but I figured maybe I'd just let you guys do that in your own terms. Like what, what is Mimir? What is this bridge you're building and, and how, how does it work and what does it do and what will it enable people to build on top of it? So the, the fundamental premise of why we set out to build what we're building is simple. It's that we've seen uh, as blockchains um, and blockchain services proliferate and reach uh, broader and broader audiences, we are accruing uh, more and more non-technical users. Uh, And so in the process of having that happen, people are trying to simplify and make it easier, which is exactly what we should be doing. Unfortunately, the shortcut that a lot of people are taking is that um, they're taking a normal set of nodes and putting them behind a RESTful API. So this is essentially, uh, if I want to ask about something in a blockchain, I normally ask my local node. In this instance, um, I'm asking someone else's node on a web server somewhere. And unfortunately, when you do that, especially when you do that with things like uh, the Ethereum blockchain, where you have complex smart contracts and complex stateful information, there's no compact proof that you can use to verify all of that information, or at least no one is using them right now, which means that all of that information being served um, is effectively with substantially less security than what was directly on the blockchain. And uh, that's really the problem is we needed to increase the security when communicating between edge connected devices and uh, blockchain based infrastructure. 
very cool. So what are you doing to actually prove the security on this? Like how, like, all right, so let me just, let me just, before I get into deep into that question, because that's, I think you get, go down a technical rabbit hole probably. <laughs> let's, let's just talk about what these edge devices look like and how people would actually interface with your system and what, what, um, what kinds of users you're actually reaching out towards. Uh, you said less technical users, but we're still talking about a technical audience that would be integrating with your system. What kinds of devices, what kinds of applications do you see this being used with? Well, I think that it can be used for a number of different things. Um, embedded devices are absolutely something that you could construct uh, a very justified argument for um, having benefits to come out of these types of systems. And honestly, uh, anytime even someone is using a mobile device, if they're interfacing with the blockchain technology or blockchain service behind the hood, uh, it's substantially more expensive to use blockchains. And so if you're going to use them, you may as well inherit the security benefits of them. Uh, which means that if you're using a mobile device, there's not a good mechanism currently to uh, meet that demand. So even if you're a technical user or a non-technical user, we're not trying to solve necessarily the UI UX. Um, there's a lot of companies doing that very well. We're trying to solve a more fundamental problem of creating a secure communication channel between these devices. Um, we can definitely get into the technical rabbit hole, but... <laughs> I think uh, I think an interesting way of looking at it, and this is something that I, at least what I gleaned from when you came on uh, the Bitcoin podcast flagship show, was that uh, because you're not necessarily serving directly to the end user, what you're doing, and at least the way I saw it, was incentivizing people to run full nodes that then also run your service and then serve the secure information to people who need information directly from the blockchain. Is that kind of where you see yourself sit in the tech stack of going from data on the blockchain to data on someone's phone from a decentralized application? Yeah, we oftentimes uh, refer to ourselves as a decentralized blockchain API. Um, and you're absolutely right. What fundamentally what our system is doing is it's incentivizing people who already are running nodes out in the world or are interested in running nodes to provide a very specific service uh, using our software clients, which allows people who want to interact with the blockchain more from an edge connected device, or if they just don't want to synchronize the entire blockchain state in order to interact with it. Like many technical people will still simply rely on like MetaMask, for example, or, um, to actually interact with blockchain state on a daily basis. And so, we would like to incentivize people to offer a secure alternative to centralized APIs. Yeah, because right now, if I connect to MetaMask, I'm going through, I think it's MetaMask. I don't actually, I typically, when I build, I build for my local private network or something like that. Um, with MetaMask, I believe you're going to an API that they provide. Correct? They're by uh, third parties, and there's about three or different four APIs that they'll auto-connect into for various things, but you're absolutely right. So it's a trusted um, oracle. It's a centralized system that's coming in between you and the... And the so how do you guys decentralize that in a... In, not just decentralize it, but how do you do it in a reliable and a scalable way? Well, would you like to take... Um, yeah, sure. Um, in short, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the ideas of proof of stake. Um, yep. Fundamentally, you uh, you ensure that a set of entities have something to lose, and that if they act maliciously, you have a mechanism by which you can ensure that they will be caught and punished. Um, what we essentially developed is a second layer protocol on top of 
we're building out our initial prototype on Ethereum, but any smart contract enabled blockchain should be sufficient. We developed a second layer consensus protocol, which works rather than coming to consensus around the state of the virtual machine, comes to consensus around the set of entities who currently hold stake and can be held accountable for serving API data. And more importantly, we use a system for proving to the requester that when API data is served to them, not only is it verified, but it is verified by trustlessly selected entities who could not have been known by the party that initially served their data. Meaning that if someone serves data to me, even if they really would like to lie to me, they have no way of predicting who will double check their work or how many entities will double check their work. And there are strong incentives to catch liars. Okay. Let me try and get that straight. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's fun to try and do these podcasts over completely audio. So like, you have, people have to use their imaginations. I hope you're not driving while listening. Uh, let's see. You're sitting as I see it, almost like a mesh, a mesh layer on top of the node, the nodes that are syncing a given blockchain. We'll call it Ethereum for now. Like you said, any blockchain can do. The this this network on top of the people running nodes are serving data to people who want information from the blockchains. Now, when someone sends a request, which means they say, I want this thing from this smart contract on the blockchain. They interact with your API and there is a way for them to get that information as well as a type of guarantee that that information is correct because it's checked from not, it's checked from the person they got it from as well as someone else. Is that right? Multiple individuals, in fact, arbitrarily many. And so this is another fundamental assumption without getting really technical again. Um, you know, we, we can talk about centralized web APIs. That's a single way to facilitate it. We also have light clients, but what we've seen in light clients is that as you get these sprawling smart contract systems that have, um, you know, more and more complex infrastructure behind them, light clients don't scale very effectively in these circumstances because you're continuously modifying state somewhere in the system and you always have to be able to aggregate all of the necessary proof to know that those interactions were valid. Um, and so this is kind of the worst of both worlds. I'm stealing one of Forrest's great lines. I love this one, but you're downloading a lot of data and doing a lot of work, and you're still not getting all of the security of directly interacting with the blockchain. So we kind of set out with the idea that it wouldn't it be great if you could construct a system in which the amount of data that need be exchanged and the amount of computation that need be performed could be arbitrarily set with reference to the value of what you're requesting. I, if you're requesting, um, the address through the ENS of the local pizza shop down the street so that you can buy a pizza, um, you don't care all that much. But if you're trying to, you know, buy a house, you very much care. And I wouldn't personally buy a house unless I had a real note in front of me. Don't take that <laughs> the wrong way. But um, this is just for a frame of reference. It's yes, there's multiple people double checking and it's arbitrarily many multiple people double checking through a recursive operation. Okay. And so obviously you don't want it to be going on forever. So you're incentivizing it. So is it like a bounty system? Is that what I'm not understanding? So you have this token, it's uh, B2I, is that what it's called? Correct? Is that, um, so is that what's the incentive model is based around that token? The, um, the incentive model 
is in terms of what's your incentive to actually do work in the system is just to get paid um, like any third or anything like that for providing a service. The, the token in our system is actually simply a reputation encoding. Um, and so that is only something held by the entities working in the system, i.e. serving data. And that's an important part of proof of stake protocols where um, you don't want someone to be able to come in and lock stake where the failure of the system that they're working in is independent from the value of the stake. Like if I, if I have a proof of stake protocol for a blockchain, I want people to lock the, um, the currency or the token of that blockchain because if they yep. lock a lot of stake and they use it to attack the system, they should devalue the, their own asset fundamentally. And um, this is kind of how some of the security around mining works anyway. Um, if you, if the mining pools that were large enough to actually successfully cause meaningful damage to the major chains, if they colluded to do that, they would immediately devalue all of their mining rigs significantly. And so even if there was some incentive to do that, it ends up sort of being shooting yourself in the foot. So that that's the place where the token comes in is binding your stake to the success of the system. Gotcha. And what what incentive do people have? I mean, like, how does the token itself gain value in an economic sense well, in this system? This is so the the analysis that we performed, how we based all of our fundamental assumptions, was on the idea that there is. Uh, in a world in which we succeed at what we're trying to accomplish and in a world in which we are generating revenue through the act of providing this service to end consumers, uh, we would be paying the people who are running our infrastructure for us, which means that you can use different forms of traditional economic analysis to say we have a payment in perpetuity of this value. Um, here's what the value of this thing is. And so we actually based a lot of those um, economics around um, becoming analogous in uh, structure and form to traditional Ethereum mining, because the people who we view as the most likely candidates to be willing to operate on a business model where they're paid to run a computer somewhere, either in right. the house or the cloud, are the miners. Um, granted, the system that we've described uh, does not require a mining rig um, to have, you know, any valid interaction. You can, in fact, do it with much more lightweight hardware, or you can use much bigger hardware and do many of these things on one machine. So um, that's kind of how we're assessing the value is we're going to actually pay you. So it has an intrinsic value based on what you're generating in revenue. That's kind of the way I see um, the reason why proof of work is so valuable uh, is that you set the incentives such that the only thing that you really, really want to do is just be honest and follow the rules because you're getting paid to do it. And if what you're getting paid to do in the scenario of a mirror is just serve data from the blockchain to someone requesting it. And so you're just kind of using what we've learned from how mining has ended up becoming the only at least as of right now, proper consensus method in existence for large scale networks, you're using the incentive mechanisms around that to then fill a gap between um, the centralized services that we have now and try and decentralize that. So it's like right now, basically what we have is like people like MyCrypto running nodes, Etherscan.io running nodes that you're just saying, 
uh, I hope you're doing it right. I mean, and we and we've seen problems around this, at least in terms of um, people using the uh, was it Coin Market Cat API for price data and their ability to manipulate those things to then make their make big money on their behalf. This is a way of decentralizing that scenario uh, without necessarily all of the work, right? The work is just serving data API. It also incentivizes people to actually run full nodes, which is something that is desperately needed in a proof of work scenario because right now the only way to be incentivized to run a full node is to mine, which is not an easy thing to get into and requires a lot of capital. So like I see a lot of benefits in the reason why you did this is that, I mean, I guess the question in all of this is you had to have seen a problem in the way this entire space was moving forward. Is And is this like the massive gap you saw and this is the solution you came up with to, to fix it? Honestly, um, where, this, <clears throat> where this all started was uh, we were talking about building a piece of ad tech that needed to interface with mobile phones. Um, mm -hmm. And what we realized as we were building this ad tech out, we were talking about the really cool stuff you could do with it. Um, essentially, what we were describing is based on some research I had done long ago in university where uh, you could uh, use cryptographic um, primitives inside of things like QR codes and other visually identifiable objects. The idea was you could determine unique position in three-dimensional space reference to these little things and um, you could basically sell any flat surface in an augmented reality world. Cool idea way out there on the end of the you know future stuff that's has so many barriers to entry it's insane but in the process of thinking through all of that cool stuff we realized man there's no real way to get all of this data out of um, the repository of the blockchain and into the end uh, device such that there's no um, centralized trusted entity in the pipe. And what's the point of all of this extra effort we're doing with the blockchain? Because we could just use a SQL database if that's the case, you know? And so we really sat down and we started trying to figure this problem out. And actually, I can distinctly remember the conversation Forrest and I were having, um, I would say, what, after about an hour of arguing, Forrest finally looked at me and said, this is ridiculous. This is too hard to solve. We should solve this problem by itself, and then we should solve the other problems. And that's where we are today. We're solving the first problem first. I don't know if we'll get back to the other stuff, but um, the first problem was the hard problem, and it was the one that we realized everyone kind of had. So, yeah, that's why we end up where we are today. So I want to get a little more at some point into how you prove that the information that we're receiving is correct. Um, but I, I, I really want to kind of hone in on the, the crypto economic side of things. And I, I, you know, I hate to do this to you so early on because I haven't, we haven't had a guest on here yet. Who's really got a, a crypto, uh, crypto economic model built into their system yet. Um, that isn't like on a protocol layer. So um, I, I, I really want to know how you guys went about the process of designing that model. And I know there's, it sounds like you're using, and correct me if I'm wrong, a DPOS kind of system, sort of, I guess. Um, it's not like a generic yeah. proof of stake. Yes. You, you could draw an analogy to it, yes. Um, um, but how did you design this and how did you prove that, like, for instance, how do I know on your system that what, what kind of like restrictions and variables did you put in to basically block it so that somebody couldn't create like a little OPEC for Memer, you know what I mean? 
Well, the so there's a few things that go into this. The the first thing that you have to be able to know about is set membership. I you need a trivial mechanism by which to know that the people you're talking with are the people that are supposed to be there, right? Mm -hmm. Two, you need to um, know that in in the event of um, collusion, even collusion on a massive scale, the the OPEC as you're calling it, that the probability of a success is sufficiently small that um, you can call it negligible, or that at least you can demonstrate the system converges to stability even under an attack of the scale of something like a 51% attack. Um, and then you need to, in order to kind of pull those things off, the other sets of assumptions that kind of stem thereafter is that it should always be worth more to be honest than to lie. Um, and it should, uh, it should be structured such that you can never know who's going to be double checking your work. Um, and that you know that the information did necessarily come through one of the communication channels that we've constructed. And so that's really what Mamir's servers kind of do in the in the world is we construct a transparent communication pipe in which we um, are a passive observer. We don't feed information into the system, but we enforce that all participants in the system are performing valid cryptographic operations. Um, and so there's a lot in that that I just stated, which do we want to kind of like pull apart and really go into first. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess the first part is you you said that you're you're monitoring. What does that mean? So um, most of what our system is built around is trying to get the best of both worlds, trying to get the the kind of speed and efficiency you get with centralized systems, but maintain strong decentralized security guarantees. So rather than having a fully mesh network that's um, you are purely only making direct peer to peer connections. Instead, um, we engineered the system such that you would use one or more centralized, essentially like high performance message queue or content delivery systems, but that the cryptography done at all the edges would treat that central messaging system as an untrusted party. And so for the initial rollout of the system, we'll be running that message system, but we've taken great care to ensure that um, the community will be able to uh, take take back all infrastructure and continue to run it if we become a malicious actor. Because if, if you're in the blockchain space, you got to assume that you may become a malicious actor. And so when Hunter says that we're a passive observer, essentially we see the messages going in through the pipe. Um, and we have our own job in the system, which is essentially that if people start misbehaving, it's our job to attempt to kill their connection as quickly as possible to essentially mitigate the damage that they do. Mm -hmm. And so um, in addition to the cryptographic commitments made by the entities that are actually serving data about the truth of the data, um, we make cryptographic commitments about the fact that entity is still in good standing with the system so that we can be held accountable if we allow any entity that falls out of good standing with the system to continue to serve and interact. So, so there's sort of layers of checks and balances going on, but um, that's, that's that particular passive observation is we provide um, commitments that at a given time, an entity was still in good standing in the system. Now, how does an end user verify that you're upholding your commitments um, 
on all this. Like, I, so this goes back to the trust issue that I kind of been pushing down, kicking down the, the line. I really want to know how are you establishing trust from end to end on the entire system when you yourself are kind of sitting in the middle as this, this passive observer with these rules that you have the capability and responsibility to quote unquote kick people out of the system. Um, what is what is to be clear about something, we, we can uh, close a connection. Um, all of the operations around the proof of stake protocol uh, take place inside of the blockchain. So effectively, we're limiting harm because we are uh, preventing you. If, if you're a malicious party and you're lying, our job is to make sure that you don't keep lying to people as soon as we figure out that you have lied, right? So we close your connection and we're effectively acting as the PAM and so then permission access management system. And so then we let um, the arbitration sequence that describes how a revocation of stake occurs in a malicious party event. Um, we let all that unfold inside the blockchain defined by smart contract logic such that we are not capable of manipulating that piece of the system. And so we can get, we can go back into the, you know, um, all of the other pieces of the trust, but I wanted to make sure that was clear in what we had said a second ago. Okay, so you have these smart contracts that you've built that basically maintain this trust mechanism, so anybody could technically go through the audit trail of the and, and basically verify that your and work is correct at any point. It's not just about re um, retrospective auditing. Um, us kicking entities out of the system has nothing to do um, with the fundamental security. That's for essentially reducing wasted work because we're trying to be as efficient as possible, computationally speaking. Um, the process that is actually ensuring these entities cannot serve in the system is entirely on-chain smart contract systems, which add and remove entities from the sets, which are considered to be in different reputation states, um, and allow for arbitration and accusation of different entities. Um, now, one of the really important things in this system is the ability to verify set membership and to do it trivially. And so um, we have a number of layers of incentive structures, but one of the layers of incentive structure is an incredibly strong incentive to um, catch people lying about, um, you all and your listeners are probably familiar with the basic idea of a Merkle tree, right? This is well, I, I, I Corey and I so. definitely are, but I think uh, I think it's okay if you want to explain it. Okay. If, um, essentially, some one, of our users are front-end developers, for instance. Okay. Um, one of the core technologies that makes um, blockchains useful and is used in most blockchains is um, a Merkle tree, which is essentially a way of using a very small amount of data to prove whether something is a member of a set. And so, if I have a very small piece of information like a block hash. I can construct a proof that can be verified only by using that block hash about whether or not some piece of information is in that block without needing to show you the whole block. So it's compact proofs that something's in a set. And so one of the strongest incentive levels in the system is ensuring that um, cryptographic certificates are regularly created identifying the Merkle root hashes or other proofs of set membership around the entities in different state in the system, i.e. you are allowed to serve this kind of role, such as serving requests directly or um, verifying other people's work. And the idea being that you can very trivially create proofs based on these about um, whether or not an entity from a very large set of entities is in a group 
and you can greatly simplify the process of arbitrating lying about set membership because if you simply use the small root of the proof as your point of arbitration around set membership and then the requesting user who's trying to get data out will not accept any information from someone they haven't seen a proof of membership for. Hmm. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, we, we specified these algorithms, one, such that they could be trivially encoded in a small amount of data. Two, we could share them um, and we could be held culpable if we were to share them with a cryptographic signature for a set that was not valid. Um, as well as independent third parties could uh, transmit this data for effectively almost no cost, which means that we're constructing a system that is intentionally engineered so that other people can reinforce or reassert what we've stated. We're trying to not be a centralized entity in any place, um, but we've accepted the, the small amount of centralization that we have to in order to pull off this protocol with the understanding that there is a long-term play where we can pull ourselves out of more and more positions of authority. As the system scales, it becomes more self-sufficient and more secure on its own. It's kind of the idea of normal proof of stake systems. That these are systems that don't play nice when you first turn them on, when there are people in the world who have large concentrations of assets or anything else of that nature. Kind of like when you first turn on a blockchain and your hash rate is almost nothing. Um, you can be subject to manipulation. So we built the system such that early on, we can kind of make sure that we're guiding it in the direction we want it to go and then kind of progressively step off from it further and further, which is ultimately what I think we'd want to do is minimize both our own um, liability as well as our own operational expense in maintaining this infrastructure. So That makes sense to me. I actually think it's interesting. So the, the, the current kind of like solutions for scaling, I mean, there's, there's, you know, like sharding, and then you've got these layer two solutions. You got your plasma and your general state channels. You've kind of got your own brand of a layer two solution. It sounds like that you're working on. That's not really been described uh, in a very generalized way uh, to this point um, where you're actually, in, you know, light clients are great and all, but you're actually serving a truth mechanism that talks about the main net without actually having to have necessarily the entire mainnet at your disposal, that's kind of a scaling solution when you think about it. I mean, it enables, not only does it enable scaling of, of the number of transactions as you could do some sort of consolidation mechanisms in front of things, but you can also, it's a scaling of um, just uh, general access um, and data size. So like uh, big problem syncing that, that, that blockchain is, Blockchains are huge. You know, they get and they grow. They continuously grow. Mobile devices can't handle that. IoT devices cannot handle that. This is a light way of kind of uh, executing uh, trustless uh, mechanisms without actually, you know, uh, having to have full participation in the network. That's, it's kind of interesting to me. Um, so uh, as a side note, I, I don't know. I, I keep, as the more and more I learn about this entire space, the main overarching theme seems to be what are some new interesting ways to Merkleize shit? And then how do we vote on it? <laughs> right? I think it's basically the blockchain space summed up in total. It really is. Um, but it's, what I'm curious about now maybe is, is what, is this, what does this look like? How does this change how people currently do things? What does it mean for the developer who's building decentralized applications? Like, now that people have a better way of getting information more quickly with a trust mechanism, from the blockchain, do they need to change the way they operate and then rethink the way they 
retrieve data? What? I mean, our intention from the get-go was that if you wanted to, you could treat us like a transparent uh, Web3 provider object. Um, speaking in Ethereum terms here, um, for your listeners who aren't familiar, Web3 is the standard library that most developers use to interact with the blockchain. And when you initially set up the library, you choose how you're going to connect to the blockchain via WebSockets or remote API or something like that. And there's one to two lines of code that you specify, which defines what kind of connection you're going to use. And then after that, your API is the same, no matter what connection you're using underneath. In its simplest form, we would like our system to work just like that from the point of view of um, a DAP developer. I add a couple lines of code and now I have a secure connection in the way that if you want to set up SSL to ensure that when you're talking to a server, you're like, you know, HTTPS, if you, if you want to ensure that you're using HTTPS in your application, most applications these days, that's a few extra lines of code to make sure you did that right. And I kind of feel like what you're doing is almost literally that, decentralized SSL for blockchains. Oh, that's, there's an, there is an analogy. So, I mean, it's around cryptographic proofs, um, and we're essentially trying to pull out uh, the point of centralization regarding, um, well, really just single point failure in the, the proof and of uh, identity of an individual as well as the information being provided. And there's some other really cool things. If we have time, I'd love to come back and just talk about uh, things in this realm even more. But the, yeah, the, the, the base idea is that we're, um, we're, we're trying to construct systems where uh, we minimize the expense and increase the security of uh, interaction with the blockchain, whether you're a developer, uh, an end consumer, or even a device, um, because really blockchains are great for storing all kinds of uh, kernels of truth, like um, sets of cryptographic keys that you wanted to use for an encryption set or set of cryptographic keys that need necessarily sign messages. Hashes of code blocks for software updates, you know, th things like this where blockchains aren't good at high throughput, they probably never will be compared to a centralized system, but there's a lot of places in the world where you don't need high throughput. What you need is a small piece of information that you need to know it's up to date with absolute certainty, and that gets you everywhere else. If you look at, um, like, with software update systems, you need the hash of the code to ensure that when you install a software update, you install the correct one. When you're sending encrypted messages to people all over the world, the most important thing you need to do is say, do I have the right public key for this person? If you do, you can take care of everything else securely. The message doesn't have to go on the blockchain, but you needed a place where you had absolute certainty that you were getting true information out. And I think that's the, by far the strongest role blockchain has to play is giving us a place where that little kernel of truth in the center of the system can be used to make sure that the rest of the system works right. Yep. <laughs> Fully agreed. Um, yeah. So, uh, so to go back to the coin for a second, the, uh, B2I, um, you say you're paying people, are you paying with the coin or are you paying with Ethereum or like, how does this, like, what in, is in, order, in order to maintain that that proof of stake system has, um, intrinsic value. Ideally we want to, um, have something that's not as speculative vehicle, i.e. we want it to have stable value. We don't want it to be something that's just traded around all the time. 
literally, I want people to take this thing and actually use it for what's an intended purpose, because then I can I can handle more bandwidth, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, we quite literally set up a business model in which we can contract on a B2B basis, on a B2C basis, um, uh, you know, and literally sell our service on a per request basis. The expectation is that on a B2C basis, you're going to have to eat loss leaders because all of the providers do it. But if you're talking about the major providers and you're talking about setting up infrastructure for an actual decentralized application, nobody does that for free for anyone else in the world right now because running nodes is expensive in the cloud. I know what my AWS bill is, and I mostly just run uh, a few ones here and there for different projects, some of them in test stage, some of them in production. It's not cheap. Um, so that's really the idea is that we'll collect revenue for providing this set of services and we will happily share that revenue back with the people who are um, providing our infrastructure because we don't have to set up a massive auto scaling complex infrastructure system mm -hmm. we can literally just take a whole bunch of messages and fan them out across thousands of potential recipients and then they can all do small amounts of work by comparison to a few centralized nodes running really heavy all day long. What is that? What and is how, that? Go ahead, Colin. Well, I was just kind of curious, like how, how you view, like if somebody's in the middle of, of committing to a, I guess they wouldn't even have to commit. I'm not really sure. I understand the flow of some, something, if a node happens to drop off the network, for instance, like that was in the middle of something. Uh, does this impact you at all? Do you guys just That's... resiliency full like on this? Do you have any problems with that? It, from the perspective of our system, that's a dropped packet. Um, Did it hit the reputation? Um, it's dropping off the network is not going to hit the reputation. Um, in order to ensure that you don't have essentially denial of service attack by constantly mm -hmm. coming on and off the network, the yep. blockchain yep. itself enforces a small timeout to ensure that you cannot rejoin activity when you drop out of activity for a small amount of time. Um, and that, but from the point of view of the communication protocol, that's just a dropped packet. Um, what, what gets you loss of reputation in the system in the long run, i.e. loss of the token, that's um, actively serving incorrect information because we can't punish people for their internet went out. You know, like that's, uh, that's not a functional um, way to build the system. However, um, the, an individual commitment, if, if you lose that from the point of view of any communication protocol, drop packets happen. It just has to be resilient to that. Yeah. And so essentially how we handle this is our communication protocol uh, for the first implementation is set up over WebSockets. This enables us to do a lot of persistent communication, bi-directional, which has some cool features for blockchain, obviously. Um, but what that means is that you can request a chunk of information and you can bit get back the commitment to a piece of information such that the user is um, unaware that anything is still populating in the background. They, they get the data to load their DAP effectively. And then verification sequences can occur in the background, but if any of the verification sequences that are pending fail, all outbound transactions are not allowed and the user is informed of the case that there has been an error reload the page, right? So the idea here is that we can give you a nice clean um, graphical user experience, a good UI UX, and yet we can create um, a mechanism to enforce the security behind the scenes asynchronously if we're running consistent connections. And if any of them fail, they time out. Um, so it's, it, it's default, everything is default to the state of failure and only on a successful um, verification response 
does it flip to the, hey, we're actually in a good state position? So do you depend on a single node as like a point of entry? How do I access these these nodes? Can I broadcast to multiple nodes and then ensure that I get to the correct response back from both? Like, how does this work? You could choose to make the same request multiple times. Um, however, the way the economics of the system are set up, um, there's a fairly strong incentive to not be dropping your connections. And so um, the, the drop packet analogy uh, is um, one that should happen very rarely at scale. Well, I mean, like, let's say as a, as a DAP, de DAP developer, I want to interact with the, the Memer system. I want to send, I, I, I just want to, I don't have the full blockchain and I just want to read. Okay, I want to read uh, this field on this smart contract at this address, and you, I want to pull down the IPFS addresses in this field, and then. But I also want to do it. Uh, I, I know that I need responsiveness, and there's a possibility that nodes can drop off the network at a frequency of, like, just say, you know, ten percent of your nodes drop off the network with every every hour. I know that I don't. That's unacceptable to me. So I'm going to diversify my my request and send it to three different nodes and pull down that IPFS address, and so my the odds of me actually losing that is low. Is that is that going to cause me problems on your system, or is that something that that you, you can know? make as many requests as you want? Um, okay, cool. There's, I I think that your your ten percent example, um, that that would be a scenario where something had probably gone horribly wrong. Um, but yeah, you could absolutely make multiple requests with the same need for information. And when you talk about the snappiness, what Hunter was describing before about essentially um, confirmation in the background. It's one of the very important things that um, we came up with the system because you want good user experience, which means, like you said, snappiness. And so rather than um, waiting for full confirmation before you update your UI and you, your um, user interface, you update when you get the initial commitment mm -hmm. and the software client that you're using from us underneath automatically disallows rights of state unless all preceding reads of state have been confirmed. And that, in essence, that is what you mm. need yeah. for, for the security to persist is I cannot send a right of state and change some blockchain state on bad assumptions, but I can have my application function with a snappy user interface and simply guarantee that the user will never accidentally send a transaction on bad assumptions. And just like if you're if you're browsing a website and your browser says like you know like uh, your connection's not private, throw up a big red flag. You need to refresh. You can do the same thing with um, this sort of system, where because at scale the economics are such that you should almost never see an attempt at malicious activity. If you do, you simply reset to the last known good state. So when you, when you say the uh, the reads they uh they 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 have to go through before the writes. That's actually a really good point and something I hadn't considered. If I'm reading from like let's say I got three reads and then two writes and then three reads and then two writes, all within a 14 second time span. By the way, I'm assuming this is on a per app user basis, a per wallet. Um, so if I you know I would ha I would have to have some way of identifying that these particular transactions, these calls, um, and these transactions are are basically the by the same person. Yeah. Um, so I send, they're all within a 14 second time span. Is this a stack kind of scenario where you have to execute these reads, send that data back, and then you can send those writes? Or do you, and how do I know that writes are even dependent on the reads? So there's a few different ways to approach it. So one, we are looking at ways to batch 
uh, which is what you were asking about a second ago. And yes, this is something that we think would be a really great idea is to batch requests. It's not something that we put into the first place. Um, insofar as being able to get, uh, you know, you're asking about putting messages in the correct place. Um, all messages can be mutexed based on a set of uh, pre-committals of randomness that the uh, user submits. So this is part of the ungameable randomized routing thing that we were talking about earlier, but there's effectively a built-in mutexing method based on 256-bit numbers, so collisions are pretty improbable. Um, and insofar as the instance where you've designed a piece of software that say was doing a firmware update based on uh, an IoT device based on something that it was reading on blockchain state, obviously in this instance, you would wait programmatically at the top level on the, the main loop for the asynchronous verification to complete on the backside. Or if you were running something like say um, MQQT or some other lightweight messaging protocol, you could design a mechanism by which you could use um, callbacks or webhooks or anything, any other number of methods where you would effectively inject the initial request and then pull on a point until you could receive the com uh, compact completed proof at the backside of it. So it depends very much on what the setting is, but these are kind of just engineering problems. These are, these are things we know how to deal with. It's just, um, you necessarily should think about these things when using these types of systems. So ultimately, we're going to have to write a whole bunch of docs and really talk about this because we don't want our assumption sets not to transfer well into the people who ultimately use it because that's how you end up with horrible security flaws. So the uh, good thing is developers understand the concept of dependencies. So I think if you build some sort of dependency system into whatever library, and that's actually another thing. So you have this library that that that's not Web3, and you mentioned that you can support multi-chain, um, which is not as relevant right now considering Ethereum is pretty much the only game in town in a serious manner. Um, but you built this thing in such a way that you don't depend necessarily. Me. You're killing me. That was my question. <laughs> well, you know, great minds think alike, Corey. <laughs> go ahead. Why don't you tell it? Why don't you ask the question, then, Corey? Go ahead. Oh, yeah, you just you basically nailed I'm it on the head, right? Like, I'm yeah. I'm curious. Like, so you could do multi-chain. I'm curious about the the like what it takes to do multi-chain transactions, and because if you're staking these coins on a specific blockchain, what does that mean across the blockchains? Is it a token that works on multiple blockchains? There's some very smart people working on atomic swaps, so. That's not I'm what we're going to try and solve. Them, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. However, um, for a given blockchain, so long as it supports smart contracts that meet a very minimum set of criteria, basically all of them will, um, if you're trying to compete with Ethereum, um, then you'll be able to run this system on top of it. Now, in terms of the actual interaction from the point of view of the developer, you probably wouldn't use Web3. You'd use that blockchain's equivalent because every blockchain is going to do things a little bit differently, probably. Um, now, I'm sure at some point, some very handsome and intelligent people will make a library that abstracts over contract interaction across different blockchain backends. But in general, most of our system, the ideas behind it are things that are very general to blockchains. As long as you have smart contracts that can force a couple very simple rules in their code, if they're Turing complete and have decent data structures, they can. And as long as you have signature verification, hashing, and all, all these sort of fundamental things, everything ports right over. Yeah. The, the, the fundamental assumption sets are that you have convergent state, that you have at least limited introspection of state inside of the blockchain. I, it can know about its own state and that it knows what cryptography and hashing is. And the, I mean, the, 
that's about the the basis of how fancy we tried to get underneath the hood. We tried to take really simple, well-founded concepts and construct a system that was resilient um, and didn't do any groundbreaking cryptography. You know, it's just <laughs> don't don't reinvent the rules where you don't have to, because we know we have these really sound, strong constructs. So let's utilize them to the best of our abilities in unique ways to do cool things. Yeah, that's a. Uh... I think you nailed it on the head on that one. Uh, I, I I have other questions that maybe move along to different types of conversation. Colin, do you have anything else on this line? No, no I, please go. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, because you've developed this particular general framework that solves a problem of centralization, centralization that we found as we, as we've grown out, uh, it, it shows you've had some foresight or at least understanding on the movement of where problems exist in the, in the stack, or at least the problems you want to work on in order to make an actual end user have a good experience that has all of the security guarantees that the blockchain has. Where do you see problems exist now? Like what holes do you see on the horizon of this entire space? that need to be filled? Well, I, I guess I'll start off with one that's not necessarily inside of the space, but uh, we talked about it very briefly earlier, and it's moreover, if I could point at something and say, man, you should be using the blockchain for this. Um, uh, using the blockchain for things like DNSing, using the blockchains for things like PKI, using the blockchain. Essentially, if you look at the internet um, and the structure of how these systems run, there are huge data stores that need to be um, controlled and they need to be read by thousands of individuals um, or millions of individuals really all over the globe simultaneously. And they, everyone who's participating in the system needs to know that nobody else is trying to screw up the record sets. And you know, we, we can describe a lot of different systems where this technology is plug and play that solves other things where we've done layers and layers and layers of band-aids that don't actually quite solve the problem. So if I had to point at where maybe the tech can go, that's a place. Now, if we're talking about internal problems for things that just have to be solved, uh, I mean, I think that really the transition in the Ethereum network into things like Wasm would be ideal for a number of reasons. This would increase the security around the execution, potentially. It would also increase the throughput of the system. So Wasm WebAssembly um, for the Ethereum virtual machine is moreover what I'm referencing. Um, and then, I mean, there's a lot of, if we're talking about the Solidity compiler, there's a lot of very gross inefficiencies in terms of gas cost and gas structure. These are things that have to be addressed. Um, uh, when you say create a, um, uh, a dynamic array in Solidity, you're actually constructing a multi-layer mapping that has all this recursive hashing stuff going on. It's a huge waste of computation. So there's better ways to do just fundamental data structures. Um, I don't know. I could go on on boring things, but maybe yeah. there's some other cool ones. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a very difficult question to answer in part because I think that there's a lot of smart people who've already very much identified what the major issues are in the short run. I do think that um, I think the problems that people are working on that strike me as the most important are the ones that are infrastructure. 
and uh, fundamental prerequisites, things like state chains, things like, um, you mentioned sharding in Plasma before, but anything in the area of like, you know, let's reduce transaction costs, increase throughput. Um, some solutions have more problematic trade-offs than others. So um, I'm not gonna speak too much about the details of that particular area, but I think in general, people who are working to make the technology more practical, I think is where I think the interesting problem solving is going on because right now I think sometimes there's, there's so much excitement in the space because we all see how powerful blockchain has the potential to be. Lambos. It's in it. <laughs> Sorry. And we Moon. walk before we run. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think a, part, a big part of this show, in my opinion, is not only talking about what solutions we're coming up with to solve the problems. It's just even asking the question and getting perspective on where the hell are we now? So that the people who are listening, who might have fantastic domain expertise in a certain area, understand where to apply that effort. Because like the more we understand what the problems are about where we currently are and how to get to that thing we want, the better we can focus people of great talent to get to those problems. And so the, and, and, there's no better people to d give that perspective than the people who are trying to solve problems because they've run into issues. Like, just like you said, we wanted to do this thing that was really cool, but there existed this other thing that didn't exist that was in the way. So now we're doing that thing because we have to. And so the more we talk about these gaping holes in user experience or, you know, technical debt or just underlying mechanisms, how blockchain works, the more we can try and get an idea on where we should be spending our time instead of maybe making pretty dApps or focusing on things that the end user has to care about, maybe we should be spending more time focusing on solving the problems that make those things exist at all. Well, I mean, the, there's there's a trade here and I, I fundamentally agree. If, if I could do what I wanted to do all day, I would lock myself in a dark room and I would be tapping away at a black screen with nothing but code on it, writing something that only other programmers would ever see because that's the type of stuff I like to write. Um, and these are the things that I think are interesting, solving the hard problems. But even within what we've been doing for our own company, you know, we talk about all these things and they're so abstract. We feel that uh, a, lot of end a lot of users, a lot of the people who ultimately will benefit the most from this don't really get it they don't see it and if you if they don't see it then it's going to be really hard to convince people that this isn't just uh, some scam mechanism for you know all of this bad press you hear about it's literally a piece of technology that at an infrastructure level can change the way that pieces of uh, society and the internet and a lot of other things behave and that is awesome and exciting but it's kind of like um, if you were to describe uh, electricity to someone, you know, okay, that's really cool. But now you put a light bulb in front of them at a time when there's only candles around, they get it. And so I think that there's a, there's a balance here. We have to build things that are incredibly useful, but if we actually want to see adoption and success of this stuff, we're going to have to figure out a way to get it into the in hand of users because users are the ones who are going to effectively pay for the services we're building that allow us to continue to develop the next wave of cool things. So it's, it's always a balance. Um, and I don't know it, it's hard to strike that balance, but, uh, 
we try to we try to at least put some things in the public domain that are easier to play with um and i know that a lot of other main projects are trying to do the same it's um but it's a it's a diversion of resources that on my honest opinion at the same time i wish i could be spending at just developing the primary code base so yeah so something i ask uh, pretty much everybody that comes on the show at this point is uh what you know are you you guys are building a, a what is essentially to me a kind of a, a scaling solution for blockchain um in a sense um it's also a framework for app development um, but I feel like at its core, it's also a scaling solution. Um, so um, when we talk about blockchain scalability, it's often kind of there's two major camps of is it going to be like an Internet of blockchains where we have all these different blockchains, different protocols. They're all like this mishmash of communication between each other and they can all communicate in some manner through some mechanism and pass value around <clears throat> or. Is it going to be this one base layer blockchain to kind of rule them all and be the central source of value? And everything kind of communicates with that. So are you more of an internet of blockchains? Are you guys internet of blockchains folks? Or are you kind of like this central source of truth folks? It, it, combinatorial problem, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm <laughs> what a great to way to say it. <laughs> this, <laughs> this sounds like, this sounds like a more general issue of like, well, both scenarios are kind of bad. Um, I mean, like, if we only have one giant blockchain, then there's no pressure to improve, and everything is built on a single assumption set. But if it's all chaos, and we're all running around, like, I have difficulty imagining I, I either scenario to be, like, the best case scenario. Um, I, I think that blockchains are a technology stack, and Technology stacks need to have a decent amount of agreement, but they also need to be able to change. And I think if everything's built on the same technology stack, change doesn't come easily. Like, I guess that, like Hunter was saying, everything's a balance. Yeah. But, I, I, but then there's only one point of change. You just have to change the central system, and then and then everything propagates. So if, if we're talking about the central data or the central blockchain as basically being like the, the one that stitches them together, not like it's a universal blockchain that there are no others. It's moreover that there's um, a microcosm of subchains and then you're using a singular interface. From a, more pro plasma style. Yeah, for, from, a, yes. from a programmatic standpoint, um, this is way easier because when I was saying combinatorial problem earlier, if you if you think about having all of these different chains try to talk to each other as a programmer, I have to do a lot of work. But if I create a universal language that everyone can talk in, and then I only have to translate from each individual language into some universal thing, then I get a lot of really cool benefits. This is why you see languages that compile into um, sub representations of the code and then into the final assembly language out of that. It's just it's easier if you have a universal translator in the middle. So. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree at this point. I think I think most people kind of, especially since the plasma white paper came out, they've definitely taken more note to the idea of hey, maybe it's possible to have more of a central source of truth. Um, but then again, I actually see the benefit of being able to create your own protocol in a free way that might completely buck the way that other that the central source of truth operates on a fundamental level. And but then 
wouldn't that be a better sensor central source of truth, a better main net for the rest of the world? So I don't know. I'm I'm kind I mean, of thinking about how do we blockchain security models are always game theoretic and market driven. We're all at least to some extent market people. Competition is good. Biodiversity, it, yeah, is good. biodiversity is very good. Um, if you have a winner, but you can still challenge that winner, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess my answer is build a really strong uh, backbone framework that lets you hot plug modular components, maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, I think, but you have to, there's a, there's a trade-off here in, in these kinds of things, and that's specificity. And like, like basically what you said earlier is you need different assumption sets. And by making the base layer, if you have this central source of truth, it has to be agnostic in every single way. Otherwise, you can find everything built on top of it to abide by the assumption set that that thing is. And if it makes certain decisions at that layer, everything else is beholden to it. So you have the same situation that we've created with the internet of you make applications that work the way the internet works, which ends up with applications that centralize information, which makes honeypots. And so you have social implications of the assumption sets of the base layer and when you allow for people to build things based on different assumption sets, based on what they want to do with the, at the end of the day, we're all humans just trying to talk to each other on through various means of assumption or, or, or relationships. You need to build up, be able to build a technology that focuses on optimizing that relationship versus folding the relationship into the technology. It, yeah, so that's definitely isolation of components. I absolutely agree. And there, but there's another set of trade-off and another counter-argument even here, which is um, if we look at things like hardware design, going back to the, it's probably the 80s. I'm honestly terrible with dates. But we look at things like SPI. Are you familiar with serial peripheral interface? It's like a communication protocol on silicon, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, if you look, there was no standard about what this communication protocol should be when it was created, but it was implemented differently by all of these different chip manufacturers. And so now if you go back and you want to, say, interface two pieces of silicon, silicon together, um, it sometimes takes a substantial amount of work to figure out how to make the two set of assumptions play with each other because they both implemented a slightly different variant of the exact same thing. Um, and so this is this is really the balance. Is I agree if you can if you could construct a protocol that was highly generalizable and allowed for um, clean interfaces that were independent of the underlying logic, I think that that would be the ideal circumstance. But it's figuring out an interface that's independent of the logic or doesn't bake on any assumptions really into it that still lets them all talk and play nicely would be the. That'd be the cool thing because then you can talk to everybody but you don't have to do the same thing as everybody else i would argue it's almost that... like all you need is the most basic staking mechanism possible and uh, then any subchains can stake into that i'd argue Maybe. that hyperledger said they did that that was their whole goal was to create that base layer that everything could work on top of but we, we kind of all know how that worked out yeah so that's Everything in its ideal world, right? It it will it'll always uh, behave ideally. So I don't know. Um, not going to say that it's easy. But yeah. <laughs> oh no, that's that's part of the like what I meant to say is that like making something that is agnostic to everything that is completely generalizable is really hard because we all want to do a lot of different things that 
work in different ways and making something that's you know trustless and fair and scalable and so on and so forth all at the same time eh, it's a hard problem no it really is i mean you're you're describing or i guess we're describing like we want something that's touring complete so we can generalize it <laughs> but you know it's it, the problem is we give everyone touring completeness and now they do a bunch of other stuff and now we have to deal with everyone else's technical debt yeah it's it's <laughs> <laughs> the, the irony of the circumstance right yeah, i think that's a that's kind of a great way to, to wrap this up is there is there any questions that we should have asked you that we didn't get around to oh man um what is the meaning of life the universe and you know uh 40, every, 42 you know, well, uh, absolutely right, right. <laughs> better better thing to ask is what's the what's the question something like that <laughs> What does that mean? You did ask the question. What's the question? So I provided the question, and you gave the answer. It worked well. What's yeah? What's yeah? Deep think. So how can uh, how can people get a hold of you? Where can I find out more? Uh, what can we expect from you? Where do we go to learn stuff? Um, you can find us at Mir Blockchain Solutions. That's M I M I R E L O C K C H. A-I-N <laughs> dot You never realize how long that is until you go to spell it. Yeah. It's on that. But yeah, mirrorblockchain.solutions. So um, uh, our website's there, our GitHub's there, white papers that describe what we're doing in a technical manner are there. Um, we're building out some uh, very technical documents regarding the economics that we were discussing today. Those are discussed lightly inside of the white paper. And... Um, we're going to eventually start digging in on the, the full yellow paper. That's the full enabling document, but there's a decent amount of alpha code base available. Um, I promise I'll be commenting more things soon. So <laughs> says every developer ever. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all need an intern to do that. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We loved having you, uh, for the listeners who, uh, have been here, if you haven't yet, Go on iTunes, subscribe. You can find us through Spotify, any podcasting app, probably. If it doesn't exist, tweet us. We'll figure it. We'll fix that. And uh, yeah, thanks for the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. You were great. Thanks.